This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode 10. So far at the halfway point. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton as we discuss some of the most notable developments in the SOFR LIBOR transition of the past year. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. It's been almost a year since our last podcast focused on the sulfur LIBOR transition, and we thought now was a great time for an update given that we're approximately halfway between Andrew Bailey's comments in July 2017 that really began the sulfur LIBOR transition and the December 2021 proposed deadline for LIBOR to go out of use. So to begin with perhaps the most notable development, Dan, how much has the SOFR FRN market grown in 2019? Well, much more quickly than I think most were expecting. So there's been $300 billion issued in the SOFR floating rate market to date, and about $250 billion total outstanding. Now, month-over-month gross issuance has grown nearly an exponential rate up until August, and since then the primary market has cooled a little bit. So we saw $60 billion in issuance in August alone, and that's kind of fallen off in September following the SOFR spike, and I think that kind of put a lot of issuers on the sidelines temporarily. It doesn't look like we'll get back to $60 billion in October, but still there's been very strong growth in SOFR floating rate note markets this year. So we expect that to continue, but there's still a ways to go. The market so far has been dominated by U.S. agencies, who've issued about 83% of all SOFR floaters to date. And even within this agency market, it's really only been about the federal home loan banks. So we're looking for this issuer base to broaden, both in terms of types of issuers and just sort of a movement away from reliance on FHLB. Specifically, we're looking for more corporate issuance into next year. We had just the first non-financial corporate issuer in the SOFR market last week, which was Toyota issuing their first SOFR floater. Dan, how have these deals fared? Well, I think the deals are going much better than maybe we would have thought at this point, given where we are in the transition. The main hurdle has been having investors having the SOFR product approved, and we've seen a lot of progress on that front. And specifically, it's going outside of the U.S. as well, whereas at this point in time last year, it was basically just money market funds in the U.S. that had the product approved. Now we're seeing banks and central banks with approval. Asset managers are increasing their interest in the product. We're seeing increasing interest out of Europe. Asia does still seem to be a bit behind on the SOFR implementation. Not a lot of distributions and new SOFR deals going to Asia at this point. But we're seeing engagement from Latin America as well. So there definitely is still a bit more concentration in demand. There's less geographies and less investor types that do have the product approved, but it's much more than it was last year. And deals are faring quite well. We all remember about a year ago when when SOFR floaters really started hitting the market, they were coming with, at times, a significant concession to where LIBOR floaters would print. And now, you know, in general, it seems like they're coming pretty much in line. 
it can be difficult to measure exactly where a SOFR float or how it swaps back to LIBOR given lack of liquidity and visibility into those basis markets. But if anything, it appears that SOFR floaters are actually coming at a slight premium to where LIBOR floaters would print. And that could just be a phenomenon, or it could also be that LIBOR floaters for the most part, are, are starting to become less popular, both from the issuer standpoint who don't want to issue LIBOR floaters past 2021, and for investors who most, I would say, don't buy LIBOR floaters out past 2021, and some don't buy LIBOR floaters, period. So it's just a natural evolution of LIBOR becoming less popular as a reference rate and so for becoming more popular that you're starting to see perhaps premium pricing in the SOFR market. Now, clearly, the proliferation of the SOFR F run market is a very important step in the transition away from LIBOR, but kinks remain that need to be ironed out. Chief among these is the lack of a standard structure for SOFR FRNs. And here I'm talking about lookbacks versus lockouts. And I'll just spend a quick minute to kind of go over what those are for anyone who might not be familiar. So unlike LIBOR floaters, SOFR floaters are backward looking and they use the SOFR experienced over a set time period to determine the coupon that's going to be paid during an interest rate period for a SOFR floater. As a result of operational difficulties with not knowing what SOFR is until the date of the coupon payment, there has to be some adjustment so that issuers can have the coupon ready to be paid on the coupon payment date. And the two most common approaches are lookbacks and lockouts. And they're similar but quite different, and the differences can matter. So in a lockout, what we're referring to here is, you know, a couple days before a coupon payment date, either two or four most generally, we'll just say two for this example, the issuer will freeze the SOFR rate that was determined two days prior to the coupon payment date, and will use that SOFR rate for the next two business days in their computation of a coupon. A look back is slightly different where the coupon determination period sort of just shifts. So instead of there ever being a lockout where SOFR no longer changes, the look back just changes the SOFR rates under consideration for a given interest rate period. So typically, if a coupon payment date falls on the end of the month, they will use the SOFR rate from two days prior to the end of the month. And then starting for the next coupon period, they will use those final two days and then all the way through to two days prior to the end of the next month and determining the coupon in the next interest rate period. And there hasn't been a standard really developed yet. We're seeing both types of issuance in the SOFR market. But I guess the question I have for you, Dan, is what kind of impact can the different structures have on returns? So looking at perhaps the most extreme example from the middle of September when SOFR spiked from you know the low 2% to 55 we looked at two nearly identical bonds that differed only in the lockout days. So we took two bonds by the same issuer, each paying a coupon during the week of that SOFR spike. However, one of these bonds had the coupon locked out during the spike, and the other had the lockout period occurring right after the spike. So what you have with the two-day lockout is one of these bonds had that five and a quarter coupon rate applied to two days of the coupon calculation, and the other had it basically thrown out from the computation. And as a result of this one sort of quirk with the lockout period and the coupon payment, the total returns on these bonds differed by six and a half basis points. And this would have, of course, been a lot larger, probably more like 12 basis points if the lockout periods were four days instead of two as the earlier bonds were. So just as a result of this kind of arbitrary lockout, which is really just an operational quirk with SOFR floaters, you actually had some fairly significant 
differences in returns. And this could pose sort of an issue from a liquidity standpoint when you have otherwise similar bonds having fairly different returns. And so we're sort of surprised that there isn't more of a standard emerging. We're seeing some convergence among these coupon payment types within issuer types. For example, a lot of financial borrowers are getting rid of lockouts and using just a one-day look back. And this is probably the most appropriate structure, in our opinion, for issuers who can handle it operationally because you're not really throwing out any SOFR rates from the coupon calculation. GSEs are still favoring a two-day lockout, and SSA borrowers are kind of settling on a compounded average with a look back that's occasionally as long as five days. Six and a half basis points is a rather extreme difference in returns for what should be a very stable floating rate note based off of a repo rate, essentially. So it just highlights that investors active in the SOFR-FRON market be very careful with what you're buying because there can be significant differences here. So, Dan, you talked about how standards are sort of converging in the SOFR-FRON market based off of issuer type. But from a high level in terms of the whole market, is there a standard or will there be a standard that sets for all types of borrowers? You know, I think the real path to full convergence in terms of the SOFR floating rate note structures is this SOFR term rate. So as you talked about a little bit earlier, we didn't have to have lockouts or lookbacks when we used LIBOR floaters because the LIBOR rate was forward-looking and the coupon was then known well before the payment date. So once this SOFR term structure is built and, and available for floating rate note issuers, then I think uh, we'll get rid of this problem once and for all. But I don't think there's going to be a broad standard that emerges before that. I think this is a good point to broaden the conversation a bit away from just SOFR FRNs and now talk about the SOFR LIBOR transition more broadly. And I think that there are two main outstanding factors that need to be talked about that the SOFR market needs to solve before it could realistically replace LIBOR. And the first of that is the construction of this term rate that you alluded to, Dan. And, and we're still kind of in this catch-22 where the cash market needs a derivative market, but the derivative market needs the cash market. And we're kind of stuck in this holding pattern at a point where it's difficult to foresee a term rate in the near term. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I say the cash market needs the derivative market because the term SOFR is much more valuable to the cash market. Derivatives have used backward-looking SOFR in arrears so far this whole time. They're rather comfortable with that. Derivative markets participants have gotten used to that structure with Fed funds as a reference rate in years past. So the derivatives market is really okay. They don't need a term SOFR. It's the cash market for you know, loans and, and mortgages tied to SOFR that really needs this rate. And as proposed by ARC, the determination of the term SOFR rate is going to come from the derivatives market. They're going to use most likely SOFR futures, potentially with some SOFR swaps as well, but at this point looking like just SOFR futures, to determine the fair value of a term SOFR rate. But they can't do that until there's robust volumes in the derivatives market. So the term rate will be stable and robust enough that it can't be manipulated. But then I say the derivative market needs the cash market because the derivatives market is primarily a hedging market. And there just aren't enough SOFR assets outstanding that will spur the type of hedging need that will get volumes up to a level adequate to calculate a term SOFR. On that point, Dan, how are SOFR futures volumes trending in recent months? Yeah, they're certainly trending in the right direction. I think they're growing a lot more quickly than most people assumed that they would. Open interest in SOFR futures contracts has more than doubled since just three months ago, and average daily volumes are around $200 billion a day, 
since September, but there's still kind of a ways to go before we're talking about the longer dated SOFR futures contracts being fully resilient to any attempts at manipulation. It's impossible to put any concrete number around what futures volumes need to get to before a term rate can be constructed based on them. But it does seem like this is going to be something that occurs around 2021. We do identify two potentially large factors at this point that could work to increase futures volumes to the point where they might be robust enough to calculate a term rate. Right. And the first is a recent announcement by the FHFA, which instructed the federal home loan banks to begin transitioning away from LIBOR specifically in two ways. So first, it recommended that the federal home loan banks no longer purchase assets tied to LIBOR with maturities beyond the 2021 cutoff. And that's effective at the end of this year. And then beginning at the end of the first quarter of next year, it instructed the federal home loan banks no longer to purchase any LIBOR-based products with maturities extending beyond 2021. And the most important implication of this is that we're going to start to see federal home loan bank advances denominated in SOFR, presumably. Is that right? Yeah, we'll start seeing advances denominated in SOFR, but it's not going to be very large, at least in the very beginning. We went into the most recent home loan bank financials and looked at just how much of their advances outstanding would fall into that bucket. And we found just $144 billion in FHLB advances that are floating rate with a maturity greater than one year. So we're talking just $144 billion at this point. And we should also note that, you know, member banks will still have the option to not do that. They could take a fixed rate, five-year advance. They could take a less than one-year LIBOR-based floating rate. So it wouldn't necessarily be that all advances have to be denominated in SOFR, but it is a very significant development in that it will start to generate SOFR-denominated liabilities on member bank balance sheets, which should then incentivize member banks to start looking at getting SOFR-denominated assets to match their SOFR-denominated liabilities. Those assets, of course, could be FRNs at the moment, but it could start to shift into lending operations as well, either with housing finance or business loans, what have you. So given the amount of volume that the FHLB lends to its member banks, having those loans denominated in SOFR represents a very important step in the SOFR-LIBOR transition. We mentioned two factors, the first being this announcement from FHFA, and the second one is a theme that's been out there for a while, but it's coming closer and closer to implementation, and that is the change at CME and LCH to start discounting their swaps using SOFR instead of Fed funds. CME already discounts SOFR-based swaps with SOFR, but obviously that is just a fraction of the swaps that are cleared through CME and LCH. But both clearinghouses are now proposing a quote-unquote big bang or whatever you want to call it, where all swaps switch over to SOFR discounting on the same day, for the most part. CME is proposing July 2020 is the date of their big bang, and LCH is targeting October 2020. So, you know, next year we're going to have all swaps currently cleared through CME and LCH suddenly transition over to SOFR discounting. And this is important because dealers typically hedge their discounting liability realized as they post margin in, in clearinghouses. And as that discounting switches over to SOFR, dealers' liability hedges will also be denominated in SOFR. So we'll start to see more volume in the market as dealers hedge those positions. 
So these two factors should start to influence futures volumes upwards, even if it is modest in the beginning. This is a stepwise process, and we're already seeing futures volumes coming up. And maybe perhaps they're going to accelerate in 2020 through the delivery of these two important factors. At this point, we should transition to the second large question outstanding facing SOFR in the transition away from LIBOR that needs to be solved before SOFR can realistically take LIBOR's place. And that is, how are markets going to value the difference between LIBOR as an unsecured rate and SOFR as a secured rate? And we got some very important news on this topic in just the past few weeks with the public release of ISDA's consultation that forms the backbone for how ISDA is going to adjust SOFR in the future to make it equivalent to LIBOR. Dan, what are some of the important factors we found in ISDA's public consultation? Right. So we've known for a while that legacy LIBOR products with SOFR fallbacks are likely to revert to a fixed spread to SOFR based on the past relationship between LIBOR and SOFR. So what does that mean? It means that ISDA is going to basically take a fixed spread and add it to SOFR going forward so that LIBOR contracts after LIBOR ceases to exist will convert to SOFR contracts plus whatever spread ISDA deems is appropriate. We now know that ISDA is going to pick this spread by looking at either the 10-year mean spread between LIBOR and SOFR or the five-year median of this spread. And this is going to have a different resulting number for different tenors of LIBOR. So for example, for three-month US dollar LIBOR, each of these methods, whether ISDA uses the five-year median or the 10-year mean, look like it's going to convert to something like 23 basis points. In other words, a contract indexed to three-month LIBOR is likely going to convert to something like SOFR plus 23 basis points. So this means that, for example, an existing loan that pays LIBOR plus 100 basis points is going to eventually fall back to a spread of SOFR plus 123 basis points or something in that neighborhood. And so why does this matter? It matters because on average, this 23 basis point spread is reflective of what the spread between LIBOR and SOFR has been in the past, but it's hardly a constant spread. For example, the three-month LIBOR-SOFR spread in the past has gone as high as 60 basis points and as low as low single digits. So on any given day, this spread might be very different from what it will be fixed to after the transition. And there's a lot of different reasons for, for this variable spread, primarily because LIBOR is a credit product. And so after this transition date, contracts that would otherwise spike in times of stress are no longer going to spike once they are indexed to SOFR plus a fixed spread. That's very interesting, Dan. And we should note here that the 10-year mean and the five-year median are the two leading candidates put forth by ISDA. It is possible that they go in a different direction, although it's very likely it will be one of those two. We just caveat that since it's not set in stone yet. But there are a couple important things to note as well. And one is that we don't know what the path of LIBOR SOFR is going to be over the next two years, and that's going to impact the calculation, correct? Yeah, that's right. So that 23 basis points, I said, is based on both previous data and also what futures indicate this LIBOR SOFR spread is going to be. But you're right, it's impossible to know right now with much precision what that's going to be. 23 basis points is our best guess for the three-month tenor. We think the one-month LIBOR is going to revert to a spread of SOFR plus nine or 10 basis points. Longer tenors are much more uncertain. Depending on whether ISDA uses the five-year median or the 10-year mean, the six-month tenor looks like it's going to revert to anywhere from 32 to 42 basis points. 
And how are futures pricing compared to where we think the SOFR LIBOR credit spread is going to fall? Is there any opportunity for investors to make money off of this? Not right now. So long-dated FRA OIS contracts are implying a spread of something like 21 and a half basis points. So not anything where we would recommend putting on a trade and waiting for several years to see if this 23 basis point spread is going to be realized, but it's something to keep an eye on for sure. If that 21 and a half basis points were to drop and we suddenly were at 19 or something like that, maybe at that point there would be a trade that makes sense. But given current levels in the time horizon, it's probably not something that's profitable enough to consider at this point. One other factor to talk about in ISDA's consultation was the discussion over a transitional period, which is something we haven't seen discussed too often, and yet could be something that's relatively important in the cutover from SOFR to LIBOR. Now, the concept of the transition period as proposed by ISDA is meant to smooth out any significant divergence between spot LIBOR SOFR on the date of secession and what the credit spread determination ultimately is. So as an example, let's say that 23 turns out to be the credit spread adjustment. And then on December 31st, 2021, LIBOR and SOFR are trading at, say, a spread of 50 basis points. Now, at first glance, it would seem like this shouldn't happen, right? Because everyone will know that the credit spread adjustment is 23. But recall that LIBOR and SOFR are computed mechanically at this point. So even if everybody knows that the spread's going to be 23 basis points, that doesn't prevent SOFR from printing 50 basis points beneath LIBOR just mechanically on December 31st, 2021. So the transitional period is something to monitor. And it would function as basically a one-year linear interpolation between spot LIBOR SOFR on Jan 1, 2022, and the determined future state credit spread adjustment. So it would effectively just interpolate from 50 in our example down to 23 over the course of the year with the LIBOR SOFR spread changing by whatever, 27 divided by 360 is per day in order to smooth it out and avoid the quote-unquote cliff edge effect. That said, it's highly questionable whether or not the transition period will even be implemented. The benefit of the transitional period is somewhat up for debate, seeing as how the cliff edge really sort of has a net benefit of zero. On the date that the credit spread drops from 50 to 23, one side of a swap transaction is going to win and the other side is going to lose. And, you know, it could be the other way around where LIBOR SOFR is two basis points instead of 23. Either way, one side's winning and one side's losing for a net benefit of zero. Secondly, it really only smooths out that one year, any fixings over that one year. Anything past that would not be affected by the transitional period. So again, calling into question how much benefit the transitional period really delivers while at the same time introducing, you know, not insignificant operational complexity with the transitional period. Market participants on both the buy and sell side across the street will have to build something into their model to account for the transitional period. It's a significant amount of work for a somewhat unknown amount of benefits. So the transitional period could be scrapped altogether, but we talk about it here just to highlight that as a rather important factor worth watching in ISDA's final determination to see whether or not a transitional period is indeed implemented. Now, naturally, Dan, this podcast would feel incomplete if we didn't discuss, at least to some extent, the recent volatility we've seen in repo markets and its potential impact on SOFR taking the place of LIBOR as a reference rate. What do you see as any impact from the recent volatility on the SOFR-LIBOR transition? So big picture, nothing really. 
I think it's important that the Fed proves that it can take control of this rate if it's going to become the new reference rate. And I think they'll be able to do that. These temporary repo operations have been pretty helpful, even though SOFR continues to trade with some volatility. Assuming that the Fed eventually does implement a standing repo facility, I think that's going to really reassure issuers and investors that this is going to be a well-behaved rate going forward. Of course, there was a minor reduction in SOFR floating rate note issuance as a result of this repo volatility. But in the long run, I don't think this is going to be anything more than a blip on the radar in terms of the bigger picture SOFR-LIBOR transition. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we saw a blip there. Issuance ticked down as some of the more rate-sensitive issuers look to the LIBOR market or away from FRNs completely, and that just makes sense. But there is one thing to note, that through the volatility of the repo market, we saw SOFR volumes in the futures market actually pick up rather significantly. As people look to SOFR futures markets to try to deal with any year-end uncertainty over the direction of repo rates over the next few months. Yeah, right. Both as it's been borne out in the data and anecdotally, there seems to be a lot more interest in SOFR futures investment as a play on year on funding stress. So you can make an argument that, well, obviously we can't consider recent market volatility and the repo rate beneficial for the process. There is some good that has come out of it. As we talked about earlier, futures volumes are a key component of, of getting a SOFR term rate installed, which is a key component of SOFR being ultimately capable of, of taking the torch from LIBOR. So there is at least some good that came out of it. And we acknowledge the downsides, but these downsides should be more of a blip on the radar rather than a structural hurdle standing in the way of SOFR taking the place of LIBOR in the long run. So I guess we can wrap up, Dan, by asking the million-dollar question, or I guess the trillion-dollar question that remains outstanding. Will LIBOR exist on January 1st, 2022? Personally, I think it will. I don't think it'll exist forever. But I think you know we've made a lot of progress on this transition to this point. We're now at the halfway point, as you mentioned, from you know Andrew Bailey's comments to the drop-dead date of of. December 31st, 2021, I think it's likely that this will be extended a little bit one way or another. I think LIBOR will be published in January of 2022. And yeah, Dan, I agree with you. I think that the progress made so far has been rather remarkable. And ARC and ISDA and all the many market participants who have made this their full-time job have done some fantastic work around the product. And clearly there is a path to SOFA replacing LIBOR. But at this point, just the cash market needs and the insufficient fallbacks on what will be legacy contracts, I, I think, are still too impactful at this point to think that LIBOR won't exist on January 1st, 2022. That's not to say it will be LIBOR as it is now. It could be the quote-unquote zombie LIBOR calculated just off of SOFR or however it happens. But this wouldn't be the first major financial market reform that's been delayed. Money market reform was delayed from its original implementation. Basel ratios across the world have been delayed multiple times. We still don't have NSFR in most major jurisdictions. So this is kind of the way that major reforms go. But so far, everything has been done rather impressively. And I think that the end of LIBOR is in sight, just perhaps not at the end of 2021. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to our update on the SOFR market one year after our initial podcast on the topic. And we look forward to any other questions or comments you may have on the SOFR transition process. 
Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash Macro Horizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.karens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.